0: Welcome to The Civic Moment, where we talk to local and regional community leaders about their civic calling and discuss possibilities for a civic future. Today, we have Dick Gephardt, former congressman representing Missouri's 3rd District in the St. Louis area.
1: So, Congressman, what was growing up like for you?
2: Well, first of all, it was a long time ago. Uh, I was born in uh, 1941, January. So uh, this year I'm 80 years old. And, uh, but I grew up in South City, St. Louis. My father had grown up on a farm outside St. Louis near Washington, Missouri. My mother came from DeSoto, Missouri, which is another small town near St. Louis, and uh, they met in St. Louis. And uh, when I came into the world, I had an older brother who was four years older than I am. My parents didn't have much, if any, money. Um, my dad's best job was milk truck driver at Peavely Dairy in St. Louis. Uh, he lost that job because his back gave out uh, physically. And then he just went from job to job doing what he could. My mother was a legal secretary in downtown St. Louis, but we had very little money. But I was a lucky kid because I had two parents who loved me and cared about me. That's the main thing. And I got educated in the public schools in St. Louis City. I had a teacher in high school, a speech teacher. And she stopped me one day and she said, I think you could get a scholarship to go to the Junior High School Institute in Speech at Northwestern University. When she said this to me, I had never thought about going to college at all. It had not entered my mind. Neither of my parents got to to high school. So it was not a subject of conversation or expectation. So I filled out the form. She helped me do it. And uh, I got the scholarship. I had not been out of the city of St. Louis. I'd been to DeSoto and Washington, Missouri, but it was the first time outside of St. Louis in my life. So I walk onto the campus at Northwestern and I meet all these great debaters and dramatists and poetry readers. And I was just shocked. I mean, I, I couldn't believe where these people came from. And so it was the seminal transformational experience of my life. Without that, without that teacher, Ms. Meenick, I can still remember her name, I would not have had that opportunity. And so from there, I got a scholarship to go to Northwestern and speech. And then I went to Michigan Law School in Ann Arbor. And uh, none of that would have been possible without all of that. So then I came back to St. Louis, South St. Louis City, I'd gotten married after law school and we settled in on Fairview, a a street in South St. Louis. And when I was in law school and college, uh, Jack Kennedy was president and I thought he was really neat. And I thought somebody that smart, that wealthy could uh, give their life to politics. That was really a neat thing to do. So that got me interested in politics. I, I was always you know, sympathetic to the Democratic Party and what it stood for, for everything. And so I went to the local ward organization, the 14th Ward in St. Louis, and met the man. My wife and I went, and we volunteered to be uh, in the organization. And he was kind of amazed. He said, we don't have many people here who don't have a job in the courthouse or something. I, what are you doing here? And I said, we're just interested. We want to we help politically. We want to be involved. So he said, okay, you two can be co-precinct captains of the second precinct. And he said, what you have to do is go door to door and meet everybody in the precinct and uh, introduce yourself, talk to them, ask them if they're a Republican or a Democrat, if they will tell you, then write down the names of all the Democrats. And then on election day, you should take our sample ballot to the polling place and stand there with your wife and hand the people the ballot for the Democrats. There'll be a Republican. there handing out the Republican ballot. And then at four o'clock, if any of the people you identified as Democrats have not shown up, then you leave your wife at the polling place and you get in your car and you go out and get them and get them to vote. So that's what I did. So we were co-precinct captains for four or five years. And then I saw an opportunity to run for city council, the board of aldermen. And so I did that in 1971. And I went door to door through the whole campaign. That's all I did for like nine months. Went to every door in the ward. My wife went with me sometimes. My parents went. And, uh, Lo and behold, we won that district. I won the aldermanic seat against a good Republican opponent by 12 votes. Wow! (laughs) If I had lost that election, I doubt I would have gone on in politics. So anyway, I'm in the board of aldermen for five years. And then our member of Congress, Lenore Sullivan, from that district retired. And then I decided to go file for that office and I went and then we went through that campaign again door to door for a year and I won that and then got reelected to the house 14 times so that's the story.
0: I was really curious to hear about your time as an an alderman here in St. Louis. What led you to wanna be an alderman in St. Louis, but ultimately what did you learn from that experience that helped you when you were in Washington?
2: It was very helpful, incidentally. It was the best thing I ever could have done. It's a real great introduction to politics because you're in the streets, you're in the neighborhood uh, and you're helping people day in and day out. We'd have 20 calls a day to my house My wife was my operator and she'd take the calls and then I'd talk to people and they call you about everything. I mean, they call you about a dead dog in the alley, a hole in the street, uh, a a stop sign that fell down. I mean, you are on call. You are a public servant. I I wanted to run for it because I lived in this near Southside neighborhood. The neighborhood was kind of falling apart. The houses were old. And I just thought this is not. We can't, we, we can't put up with this. We got to get people to fix up this neighborhood. So that's why I ran. And, and it was a job I could run for by going door to door. I had no money. So it was a place I could start in politics. And, and so all that was attractive. And after I got there, uh, I found five other, four other young people like me who had gotten elected to the board at the same time. And we all came from, similar neighborhoods that were kind of run down and needed help. Together, we were called the Young Turks for some unknown reason. And uh, (laughs) none of us were Turks, but we just worked together and and with other members of the board to improve the city and to improve neighborhoods. The first thing we got involved in was uh, Mayor Cervantes was the mayor, and he wanted an increase in the sales tax. And so the five of us, or maybe 10 of us, went to him and said, look, we'll be willing to vote for this, but we want you to use some of the money for an improved uh, sidewalk program, because there were a lot of streets in St. Louis that didn't have sidewalks, paved sidewalks. And so he finally said, okay, if I get your vote, I'll do that. And he did that. And it really improved those neighborhoods, because When people see their neighborhood improving, then they want to improve their house, their apartment, whatever it is. So my first day at the board, uh, there was an old guy there who reminded me later of Tip O'Neill. He was a big white-haired guy, jolly guy. In fact, he was bald. He was a bar owner in South St. Louis, Red Villa. You may have heard of him. And he took me over to the side and he said, okay, young guy, I think You might have a future here, but just remember one thing. Everything in politics has to do with what happens on somebody's street or alley. Or next door. And if you pay attention to that, you can get reelected. But if you're down at the Board of Aldermen giving great speeches about the budget or this or that, you will not get reelected. You got to take care of what the people care about. And you have to be seen as somebody caring about them and solving their problems. Best advice you'll ever get. When I got to the House of Representatives, Tip O'Neill, in the first meeting, he had two pieces of advice. One, never break your word. If you give your word, you got to keep it. If you don't, you're done. Nobody will believe you ever about anything. The second piece of advice was all of politics is local. It's not about these national issues, not about the budget, not about foreign policy. It's about what happens in the streets in the farms, in the communities, in your district. And that's what you have to pay attention to. So it was really the same message, public service. It's very simple.
0: I think that's wonderful for you to pick that out. And I think we've been part of conversations and heard from folks that people feel disconnected from their representatives at points as well. And, and people having you know, really a lot of frustration. Part
2: of it is the fundraising thing. And, and the fundraising thing makes people believe that you only represent the, the special interests that give you the money, whoever it is. It's rich people, it's businesses, it's unions, it's whatever. To me, if there's one big reform I could make, a political reform, it would be to reform the whole money-raising process. I worked with John McCain in the 1990s or the early 2000 period to pass McCain-Feingold which was a limitation on what could be given to a, a person running for office and that's all expired and you'll never get it back so and now you have dark money which is you know I, if I'm a really rich person I can go into a race and without even telling the candidate what I'm doing put millions and millions of dollars into that race so people have come to believe that the representatives don't represent them, that they're, they're beholden to all this money. So here's my solution, and I'll just give it to you in 30 seconds. I don't think with the Supreme Court we have, or maybe will have, you can change this because they say money equals uh, speech. So it's free speech rights for anybody to give as much money and spend as much money as they want. Okay. I don't like that, but that's that's their decision. Uh, so what I would do is try to pass a bill in Congress or in a state legislature, wherever you're trying to do this, that would say, if, if you will pledge to not take any money from any PAC from any dark money or anybody that has a lot of money, any business, and will only restrict your fundraising to people who give you money. And they would be restricted to no more than whatever you can agree on, $500, $1,000, not much more than that. That's it. You can only raise money from people, then for every dollar you raise in that manner, the federal government or the state government, if you're a state officer, will match that money dollar for dollar. So if I raise $500 from you, I get $500 from the government to run my campaign. And your opponent doesn't have to do it. So you could be out there with these restrictions and they don't have them, so you could, good luck. But I could go to my constituents and say, hey, you want me to represent you? Then you got to help pay for me to be in office. Because if you don't, then the special interests are going to run the show. And if you do, then, you know, give me 10 bucks and then I can get 10 bucks extra for that. And then I'll be able to compete and I'll be better to compete because I'm going to say to all of you, You know that I'm there for you, not for anybody else. Good luck on passing that bill.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, you know, it's and I think for for many people who aren't familiar with the political realities, they may not realize how big a role that that plays. That's why I think even it would be hard, I think, to make the case to folks. You should try to make the case to your own constituents that you're going to run only on their own money. I, I think that's been tried in recent campaigns. But I think it's still an issue that's not fully understood, I think. But I think if it was something that someone was able to package and, and explain in a detailed way, in a way that, that connected with people and really did have the backing behind it also of you know, having that dollar to dollar match, whether it be two or three times or whatever, you know, it's hard case. But I think it's something that, that we'll see more of, more conversation about, hopefully in, in the coming years, about what does campaign finance reform look like?
2: I hope so. I really, I think it's a major issue. It's a big problem. And uh, to just give you some numbers. uh, When I first ran for Congress in 1976, a long time ago, uh, I had a tough primary against some really good opponents. And I had a tough general election against the guy who was the president of the board of aldermen at the time, a Republican the total amount that I raised and spent total was $70,000. Now today, (laughs) a garden variety race is at least a million dollars on each side. And some of them are three and five and $10 million on each side. So the members, the people running, I mean, unless you're, fabulously wealthy, and I had nothing, you're going to spend all your time fundraising. And and I spent a lot of my time after I got in Congress having to fundraise because the, the elections became so expensive. I swore that I would never be affected in any way that I would vote by anybody who gave me any money. I knew that was wrong. I wouldn't have lived with myself. I wanted to represent these people who send me there. I had to raise money and I took money from PACs and wealthy people and so on. But I never let it affect any vote. But even if that's your attitude, if you're spending so much time raising money, you're not doing your damn job. You're supposed to be back in your district talking to people, listening to people. You're supposed to be working with your colleagues writing legislation and finding compromises. It all takes time. Why should you spend all your time raising money so you can get reelected? It's crazy. We've got to change the system.
0: You would think that the way that you described it of spending the time, hitting the pavement, going door to door, building those relationships would really be the most powerful element of of our democracy. I'm curious if you can shed some light on why folks feel like, oh, I actually need to build the war chest. I need to get the money. And that's, and that's overriding what I can do by just going door to door.
2: First of all, going door to door is, is for a lot of people, uh, they just, they don't want to do it. I'd always say to candidates who told me they wanted to run, I'd say, well, you need, you need to go door to door. And they'd say, well, I did that and it's, I don't think it's effective. (laughs) I just say, well, you don't get it. I mean, it, it is the best way to get people to know you and support you. The other reality is that even if you do go door to door, like I did religiously, there is an impact of money today, especially with television. Television wasn't a big deal in politics when I got into it. Today, I know for a fact you you can destroy an opponent in one week of saturation television, negative saturation television if it's well done. Now it's kind of gotten a little bit run its course because people see so much of it they're tired of it, and so probably you can do a counter campaign that would be even more effective. I still today, TV very expensive, and can be devastating in a race. And now you got social media that has a similar impact, especially on young people, but all people. So money is a big deal. And it's very hard for me to believe that somebody can just shoe leather a campaign entirely and win. You got to have enough. You don't have to have as much, but you got to have enough to get your message across and to get across who you are. And there's just no two ways around that. Clearly you've had such an immense career
1: for some people that'd be the dream career in politics. You've seen so much in the United States, you know, since your, your time beginning office and since your childhood, looking back and seeing how the United States has, has changed, what would you, what would kind of be your diagnosis of where things are at?
2: So uh, a lot of things that I saw way back then when I was young, uh, have gotten better, some of them much better. Some of it much worse, <laughs> and so let me just tick some of that off very quickly. So, first, the country is much bigger in terms of population than it was when I was young. Uh, to give you some numbers, in 1950 there were 150 million people in America. Today there's probably 340 million, so that's dramatic increase. What we're much wealthier. People just didn't have much back when I was young in the 50s and so on. I mean, we'd just come out of World War II. The economy had suffered badly. I mean, it was on its knees, but it came out quickly. But, you know, we never had a car. I I, I rode public transit most of my young life. Uh, My dad finally bought an old beat-up used car, a 37 Ford. And that was our car. And it had no air, no air conditioning. It didn't even know what air conditioning was. <laughs> it had no heat. There was no heater in the car. You know, there was a lot of things that we take, assume today that we did not have. But nonetheless, we were happy. I mean, My parents had no money, but I felt like we were in the middle class. I mean, we got this old car. We had a little bitty house, a brick bungalow. The house cost 4,000 bucks. My dad never made one principal payment on the house in 40 years. All he did was pay interest so we could stay in the house. So that's a big contrast. You know, obviously, technology has changed so dramatically. When I was a kid, all we had was radio. I'd listen to every Cardinal game with my dad on the radio. There was no television. And and that was kind of our... Big deal every day, every night. We'd listen to the Cardinal game from first to the ninth inning. And that was our big treat. Um, Then television came in. And (laughs) we didn't have a television for like seven years after it became available because we couldn't afford it. You know, when I'd go to school, kids would talk about TV shows they were watching, Howdy Doody or whatever. I didn't know what they were talking about. I felt like left behind, right? So that's changed a lot. And now, of course, you have not only television everywhere, but you got social media, you got the iPhone, you got all these means of communication. So all of that is an improvement in our lives, I think, uh, that we should be grateful for. Um, and healthcare is so much better. I mean, When I was a kid, we went to a doctor who had an office on 39th street in South St. Louis. And uh, he practiced in a old barber shop. And so he'd put me up in the barber chair and look at my throat and, you know, test my heart and all that. I mean, he couldn't do anything for me. If I got really sick, I was gone. The boy next door got tuberculosis or something. And he, he almost died. My cousin, he was seven when I was six. He went in for a tonsillectomy at St. Anthony's Hospital in South St. Louis. And after the tonsillectomy operation, he hemorrhaged and died. So healthcare was really bad. It's so much better today. And, and now people who, you know, we had no money, but there was no Medicaid. There was no Medicare for the elderly. People were just stuck if they got sick. They had nothing. They had to count on the gratuity of the hospital and the doctors doing it for nothing. So all that's a huge improvement. The other thing that I remember then that I think was so important was that the American people were really united is the best way I can say it. We, you know, you've always had differences between political views, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, moderates, whatever. And we had that then for sure. But now it seems to me that half the people hate the other half and vice versa. It's like, there's no respect for each other, no matter what your beliefs You know, when I got to the House of Representatives, one of the older representatives said, look, you're going to have some bitter disagreements with your colleagues, not only in the Republican Party, but with your colleagues in the Democratic Party. He said the Democratic Party is like five other parties in any other country. So it goes from left to right. But you have to respect people. You have to listen to people. You have to empathize with people. And you try to have to learn from people. He used to say to me, none of us knows everything. I know what I know, I don't know what you know. I I didn't come from your background. I I didn't live in your house. I didn't see what you've seen. I know what I know. But we have to listen to one another so that we can find some common ground and maybe find some agreement. That has really disappeared. And that really, if you ask me one thing that worries me most about the country, it's that. It's the division. The divisiveness, the polarization of the American people, I'm having trouble understanding how you can have a successful democracy if the people are bitterly, irretrievably divided.
1: That's a very astute and very acute diagnosis that you're able to provide, you know, from your background. And so I wonder where do you feel like that began, you know, that kind of polarization, you know, that time, that kind of bitter, bitter divide. Where do you feel like that started to expand a little bit?
2: Well, the first thing I have to say is that you have to always remember that politics is a substitute for violence. It really is. And I'll take you back in history of evolution. I think we evolved from animals, chimpanzees, apes, gorillas, whatever. And they did not have democracy, (laughs) They had autocracy, and to become the leader of the tribe or the group, you had to exercise violence. You had It was King of the Hill, right? King of the Hill. So two dominant males would fight it out, and they wouldn't kill each other, but the one that was physically dominant would become the leader. That's politics, and politics is a substitute for that. So our ancestors, you know, and the founding of the country back in 1789, which was the time of the Second Enlightenment, had read all this literature from Europe, where they had autocrats, they had kings. And many of these people had come from Europe because they wanted to get away from the autocracy, from the dictatorship that they lived under, the lack of freedom, the lack of free speech, free opportunity. So they came to America to found a new country with a new idea. And the idea was that here the people could exercise self-government. They could govern themselves through the election of representatives, representative government, to make the big decisions for the group. That they did not want one person to make those decisions. They wanted a very large committee that we've called Congress, to make those decisions. They knew that it was a really creaky machine, that it would have lots of problems. How would these people be able to find agreements on controversial, heartfelt difference issues? But they believed that people could do this. And in the end, democracy here or anywhere depends on the people. If the people want it, and believe in it, and care about it, they will protect it, nurture it, and execute on it and make it work. If they don't care, then we're gonna go to one. We're gonna go to one. I'm writing a book right now, and the name of the book is 535, Not One. And, And I'm writing a book of stories of my time in Congress, and I want readers, if there are any, to, to really experience what I experienced being inside that committee, being a leader in that committee, and helping that committee and our country make decisions to get things done, which is very, always, very hard to do.
1: You have a very unique story. It's a story that touches on rural America and touches on urban America um, in the heart of our country. And as we look at the divides, I think, you know, some data has come out to show that this is very, it's a very rural urban divide, you know, as it comes to partisanship. Um, And so I guess, what would be your thoughts about how do we bridge these gaps? Um, You know, we have the United States that is increasingly, again, polarized based on geographical location. How do we bridge these gaps?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of big things that have to happen. One is that no matter whether you live in a rural area or an urban area, you have to be willing, again, to respect the people that are disagreeing with you or live in a different circumstance than you do. And you have to listen to them. You have to structure a way to talk and not just think they're bad people. So that's one thing that has to go on. And that's slow, but sure, it's going to take time. But my second thought Is that that kind of human interaction, you know, it's tough enough on Zoom, but we don't do much of it in person anymore, even even before the pandemic. And the reason for that is the technology that's in front of us 24-7. Everybody's got an iPhone or most people have an iPhone or a mobile device. It's part of their body. (laughs) Young people are on it day and night. (laughs) Even old people like me are on it day and night, and there's no human interaction. Let me take you one step further. In my view, the social media platforms have a business plan that depends on algorithms that when you sign on, they know everything about you. They know, know who you voted for. They know what you like. They know what movies you like, blah, blah, blah. So they shove you into a bubble to keep your attention on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is. To talk to people or hear from people that think exactly like you do. And and even to get you angry at the other part, the other side, so that you'll keep your attention on Facebook, on those sites, and they can run more ads and make more money. Their, Their goal is not to make you bitter, or to not have you hear other thoughts. Their goal is to make money. It's pretty simple. So my worry is that we've got to begin to do something about that. Uh, I'm kind of working on it as a hobby. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who know more about it than I do. Tristan Harris, the guy who did the video, The Social Dilemma, he was a former Facebooker. Uh, he is very worried about where we are. And my worry is that if we don't change this to healthy information, healthier information, he calls it a cleaner internet, uh, we're never going to bridge these divides. We're just going to have people all amped up and as angry as hell about anybody that doesn't agree with them on whatever. And it, it's just hopeless. So it takes face-to-face listening and communicating and then in my view because so much of communication today is on the internet we've got to affect that in a better way
1: I think it's so ironic because you know the internet was kind of this big promise this new frontier of communication of growing closer together of globalization and yet now we have such deep engrossed encampments you know online even you know these yeah. we thought this is going to be such an open space and it's become actually very closed uh, in many in many respects. And just to pivot, uh, I really wanted to get a story from you. If you had to think back, you know, your story career, is there something that stands out to you in terms of a story or a vignette of a moment that really stuck with you as this is why I'm doing this work? This is why I'm here.
2: Well, I could keep you here into uh, the night uh, <laughs> telling stories. There were so many. Look. To me, public service is the most gratifying thing you can be involved in if your mission is to help people. If that's what you really love to do, then public service is for you uh, because you can really help. But if I had to think back on the maybe the toughest things, when I was leader in uh, 1990, I was majority leader, uh, we met with uh, George H.W. Bush, that was Bush one. And he wanted to do something about the deficit. He thought it got out of control and we agreed with him. And so it took nine months of negotiation and I, I led it for the Democrats. And uh, Dick Darman, who was his budget director led it for the Republicans. And we had nine months, literally, of meetings between Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate and White House people. And at the end of it, we still didn't have a deal. And so I said to Dick Darman, we got to get these people out of here because the press is all over this. And they're saying to people, we hear you're going to cut Medicare. We hear you're going to cut this or that. And members would say, oh, no, I'd never do that. So I said, we're going to have no votes by the time we get to the floor. So I said, let's take everybody at Andrews Air Force Base for 10 to, You know, I didn't know how long it would take. But we took 150 House and Senate members to Andrews Air Force Base to the dormitory there. And we locked them up, kept the press at bay. <laughs> and we finished the negotiation. And when it was all done, uh, the idea was we'd provide half the votes. The Republicans would provide the other half. And we went on the floor and argued it for three days and we lost. We lost nine months <laughs> of hard work on everybody's part. And I had said to Bush before we went to the vote, I said, look, I'm I am in trouble with my liberals. I mean, they don't, This package cuts a lot of the programs they believe in and some of them wrote. Uh, You got to give me some more cuts in defense. It's the only way I can pick up a few more votes. And he said, I I just he said, we can't do that. We got to have a strong defense. And I said, well, I'll do my (laughs) best, but don't count on it. So we went to the vote. I did produce half my votes. The Republicans did not produce half their votes because there was a little bit of tax in it which nobody ever wants to vote for a tax. I guess they think that people think money comes out of thin air. So we didn't get enough votes. So I went back to Bush and I said, you got to give me a, a cut in defense. It, it doesn't have to be huge, but I got I to have a way to get more votes if I'm going to have to produce most of the votes. So he did. We did. And we passed it by one vote. Passed it by one vote in the Senate. And I was the last guy on the floor. This is right before the holidays. And I walked off the floor and there was Dick Darman who had led the Republican side. And we hugged one another. That's how hard this is. Democracy is really hard, but it's really worth it. And as I look back on my career, it was those really tough mountains to climb that yielded great results for the country.
0: You've run for president, which is something that <laughs> you don't get to talk to many folks who've run for president before, and especially um, twice. I'm curious if you have any reflections on, of course, what led you to say, this is the time for me to run, but then ultimately you know, knowing that those candidacies weren't successful, what did you learn from that? Just being able to have that experience?
2: That's a great question. So I, I ran in uh, 88, 1988, I'd been in Congress By 86, for 10 years, I was chair of the Democratic Caucus. Uh, I had lived through uh, Jimmy Carter, who came as president when I got elected. And I really liked him. I I respected him. I thought his heart was in the right place. He's trying to do good things. But he really never was able, for a variety of reasons, to relate to Congress very well. He, He didn't have many meetings with members there wasn't much interaction. And if, if you're going to lead Congress, you've got to respect everybody and, and frankly, suffer some fools well. Even though you completely think somebody's off base, kind of crazy, you got to show them respect. You got to listen to them. You got to treat everybody well. And he just didn't do that. And as a result, I felt I was really disappointed in what we were able to accomplish when he was president. It just, it didn't work as well as it should have. And then along comes Ronald Reagan. And even though everybody liked him and he was hard not to like, I just thought he, you know, had really horrible policies. Uh, The deficit ballooned. He gave tax cuts to the wealthiest. And I just thought we can do better than this. And I felt that my experience in Congress and working with members, and, and, and I thought working with respect with all members would equip me to be a president. We don't have a parliamentary system. So you got to have a president who can work with Congress to get anything done. Congress holds the purse strings. Congress decides everything. And so to me, the biggest test of a president is can he work with Congress to get stuff done? And I knew I could do that. And that's what I wanted to do. I had 80 or 90 House members who endorsed me for president when the primary season started. And most of them volunteered to go to Iowa, to go to New Hampshire and take a county and work it for me. So it was that, it was that relationship that I wanted to show the voters that that would be the kind of president I could be. So that's why I decided to run. It was a big decision. Uh, It's really tough on your family. Uh, They have to do all this with you. None of them signed up for it. So (laughs) this is public service and the whole family has to be involved. But It was a wonderful experience. We won Iowa. We came in second in New Hampshire, won South Dakota, and then got killed on Super Tuesday in the South. And it's okay. I have no regrets. It was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. I learned so much about people, about the country, about different parts of the country, about all kinds of people and it was a really really valuable and wonderful experience
1: so we've been talking about this civic moment which is this
2: podcast
1: and what what gives you hope for our civic future you know we've been talking about some of the things that we find to be problematic some of the things that we think are bring our country down not bring us together but what would give you hope looking into the future
2: you <laughs> You and the millions like you. The future will be determined by young people like you two and millions of others. And I am deeply impressed. I'm not blowing smoke at you. I'm deeply impressed with all the young people I've met at Washington U and other universities and high schools across the country. Young people get it. They want a better world. They're worried about the right things. They're worried about our problems. And they're willing to address it and to be civically and community engaged, which is where everything starts and ends. So I'm optimistic because of the young people. And I must say that I'm also optimistic because the great majority of Americans have the right values. They care about the country. They care about their family. They care about their community. And they're level-headed and sensible. Nobody's perfect. I haven't met the perfect human being yet. I'm still looking. But everybody has faults. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has things that they shouldn't have, including me. But in the main, People are really good. And when you go door to door the way I did for 40 years, you really begin to understand how good they are. So that's why I'm optimistic. Thanks for being with us as we dive into This
1: Civic Moment. You can find the Geffhart Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to This Civic Moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments.